Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Let's switch gears. You guys ready to wrap up Judges? Way more enthusiastic than first service. The way first service responded, I thought for sure they wanted me to keep going in Judges. Y'all are ready to be done. Okay. You're in the right spot because today's your day. Uh, We are going to wrap up the series, and one of the things I just want to point out is that Samson is the last judge in the book, and so one might think when the last judge dies, the book is over. But contrary to popular belief, there's five more chapters of Judges. And if the first chapter sort of took more of a bird's eye view of this idea that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, you would think, uh, you could re- kind of think of the last five chapters as more of ground level, like really close up view of how they did evil quite precisely. It's pretty graphic. And there is some pretty difficult stuff to read and work through. So we're not going to cover all five chapters together in here. What we're going to do is we're going to look at one story of a guy named Micah and his family. And we'll unpack that one today. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to really encourage you, challenge you to finish studying through judges on your own. Like we've come this far, we've spent 10 weeks, we've dug in, we've learned, we've grown. And then it's like, don't just skip the end. And so we put together a great resource for you to help you walk through some of probably the most difficult passages in the Bible with some stories that are extremely graphic and hard to understand. When you read it, you're sort of like, why does that need to be in here? Seriously, like it's, this is ugly stuff. And so uh, we want to make sure that one, that you don't just skip out and not finish Judges, but two, we want to give you some tools to walk through some of the most uh, hard to read stories. And so you can get those same thing, that phone number that we use a lot. You can just text judges to that same number. It's in your sermon notes. And then you can choose whether you want to have it, uh, e like a little ebook, uh, email to you, or if you want a snail mail copy, we'll get you a hard copy. So you pick whatever works best for you. And we will make sure you've got the resource to kind of finish your way through judges. If you haven't been a part of the series or you've missed some of the series, you're going to want to make sure that you listen to it or catch the podcast and catch up on it, because if you just jump into the end, you're going to be missing probably some of the important things that we covered up to that point. So that being said, let's do it. Let's talk Micah. Micah starts in Judges chapter 17, his story of him and his... uh, quite forgiving mom, we'll see. goes like this in Judges 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Which is a really weird response to finding out your son stole all the money out of your purse. Um, Number three, Uh, when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver, and I will give it back to you. And so right out of the gate, we see some kind of an unusual character here. It's like we're trying to get a feel on, like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? How's this going to go? It's like if he, was, if he was totally bad, then he probably would have never gave the money back. But if he was actually a good guy to begin with, he might not have stolen it. And so you're, you're sort of at odds, like something seems off about him for sure. And then the way his mom responds to him is not the way we would anticipate any mom responding when you found out that your son stole a bunch of money out of your purse, right? Like, 
Like, oh yeah, I took that. Bless you, right? Like, I am so proud of you right now. It's like something doesn't feel right. Something's off. Something's a little bit weird about this. Like, you would think that she would be angry, for sure. You would think that she would be maybe turning this into a teachable moment. You know, here's six or seven reasons why we don't steal. Or maybe 1,100. Let's go through them one by one, right? Uh, And some parents would respond that way, like kind of overly harsh, like lean heavy on the discipline. That tends to not work out very good when it comes to parenting, if you're just a real heavy-handed. On the flip side, for a parent that sort of excuses everything and kind of turns a blind eye and like their kids can do no wrong, that doesn't really usually work out very well for the kids either. And so we'll see a little bit more of how this plays out, but it gives us an idea of maybe why Micah is the way he is a little bit. Like when you sort of feel this sense that something's off with him. When you see how his mom responds to him stealing, it kind of gives you an idea like, okay, like something's amiss all the way through, right? So she blesses him. She dedicates the money to the Lord and she wants to have the silver made into something nice to honor her son, which is still weird. Verse four, after she returned the silver to his mother, or sorry, after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. So she's, she's, um, She's dedicating this to the Lord. And so we get this idea that she is and is following and knows the God of Israel, Yahweh. She's not, she's not dedicating the silver or having it made into something in the name of Baal or Ashtra or some other pagan God. Like she's talking like she's a follower of God. And then the other thing is that the way she responds, so on the one hand, it's sort of like she's consecrating it to the Lord. I'm going to give it all to the Lord. But then the way she acts, she's like, and here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to make it into this idol or have it formed into an idol. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll be familiar with the idea that making idols is a bad idea, according to God. And, and so, it, it, again, it's just like this something's off with this family. Something's not right. Like, I want to dedicate everything to the Lord by doing a thing that the Lord clearly says don't ever do. Right? And it's a good pause for us to look at that because it's kind of one of those commands that I think we can look at or have heard or been familiar with. And we know what it says, but I don't know if we ever really wrestle a lot with why. It says what it says. It shows up for the first time when God gives the commands to Moses in Exodus. So Exodus 20 verse 4 starts off, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children, and the entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. And then later, so that's at the beginning of their time in the wilderness. That's like shortly after the rescue out of Egypt. And then after a long time in the wilderness and a great detour, they're nearing the time where they're going to enter the promised land. And Moses is reminding them about the commandments. They've spent a long time since they first initially were given the law. And so Moses reminds them before they go into the promised land. And when he reminds them about this commandment, he says it like this in Deuteronomy 4 verse 15. He says, but be very careful. 
You did not see the Lord's form on the day that he spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. So do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether a man or a woman, an animal uh, on the ground or a bird in the sky. And so one thing we can get for sure out of this is that God feels strongly about not making idols about not uh, carving graven images, uh, not trying to worship something that is a thing uh, as God or as uh, interpreting of who we think God is, right? Like he's very clear, like this is not to be done. It's not a good idea. But I wonder like how often do we wrestle with why? Why is it such a big deal to God? And, And I would say one of the things I think that that we could say is true is that any image or man-made idol of God would reveal part of God's nature but conceal other parts. Right? There's this idea that if you paint a picture of God, for example, you know, does it show God smiling? Does he have really nice eyes? Does he look, you know, um, you know, kind of uh, soft and tender? Does he look angry and holding a lightning bolt? Like, like it, however we portray God, whether it's a art or a statue or an idol, we start to revise, whether we really know it consciously or not, we start to revise and shape who God is. And it's a a, a slippery slope where unbeknownst to us, kind of kind of accidentally, I think, at times, that 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 we see what God's really concerned about. That worshiping kind of statues of God or images of God can really easily become about us. I, I think at the heart of God's concern with idol worship and graven images is our tendency to want to pick and choose the parts of God that we like. Right? we tend to filter out the parts of God that are uncomfortable. Like, um, we don't look at the, and celebrate necessarily in a, in a image or a statue. Like, let's commemorate a, a, a statue or an art piece that portrays God as the God that drives out millions of Canaanites out of the land and their families, that they're supposed to be killed, all of them, even their livestock. Let's put that on the mantle and make sure we remind ourselves that God's a God like that before we eat dinner every night. Nobody likes that. It's like, oh, that's uncomfortable, but the, but we're okay with looking at other parts of who God is and what God's like. And as a result, it can just sort of subconsciously start to reshape or revise what we want God to be. And that, I think, really is at the root of why God's so concerned about not making idols or images in some respect. And, and I think the other thing that's that it bears saying and reminding it is that we can read this in our modern world and we read some of these Old Testament stories and we can read about making graven images or idols and we're like, I can't remember the last time I saw somebody carving idols. Like that seems like a pretty old fashioned thing. That's more of an Old Testament kind of issue. But the truth is it's still very much an issue for us today and it shows up in different ways. For example, probably many of you have maybe heard somebody say something to the tune of like, I really like to think of God as, 
When I think about God, what I really like about God is, you know, I don't like to think of God as, and we have this like kind of revisionist mindset. And it's like those things are shaped by things that we've seen, images we've seen about who God is and what God's like. And, and for us in the culture that we're living in, um, there is for sure a movement at foot to revise and reshape who God is. In the world that we're living in right now, it's a movement called progressive Christianity. That's the slogan for it. And it, it kind of packages itself as like um, kind of the modern right way to think as a Christian. That like, you know, like don't be an old-fashioned Old Testament Christian, be a progressive Christian. And it packages up all sorts of things under the guise of kind of this is the right way to think about who God is and what God's like. For example, you could pick out all kinds of things to pick on uh, that they uh, get wrong in so many ways. But one of the things, for example, that's an easy thing is that in uh, kind of the progressive Christian movement, they want to re- kind of revise and reshape who God is. And, and one of the things they want to say is that the culture and the, um, the society that you're living in and, and what's tolerable and palatable and comfortable gets to go in the driver's seat to dictate what God is really like. And so whatever's politically correct, whatever's comfortable, whatever's popular, whatever is in all of the mainstream media and in every news show and sitcom, that gets to tell us about like what will people tolerate and what they will tolerate. Now it gets to be like, hey, this is who we want our God to be. This is what we want our God to be like. For example, they really want our God to be a God that doesn't make people man and woman. We, the, the progressive movement really wants God to be a God that lets people be what they want to be, but it doesn't line up with who God is and the truth about how God has created us. God's created us as man and woman. He's made us in his own image, like a hundred percent distinctly biologically unique, male and female, different, and yet totally equally worthy in value but distinct in our design and our roles. And that flies in the face of some of the modern perspectives of like, what is God like? And and what do we want God to be like? If you put yourself a sign together that says, God made people man and woman, and they're totally different, but he loves them the same, but they have different roles. And you just walk around this town, you'll get some feedback. You'll quickly learn that is not what is popular in the culture. But that doesn't mean it's true about who God is and what God's like. And what we find is that very much like Micah's family, there's always going to be people that are trying to kind of revise or reshape who God is and what God's like based on what fits in the culture and in the society. And at the root of that, not the only cause by any means, But a way that it can show up is in worshiping or making graven images or trying to portray only the parts of God we like. And I think that's at heart 
of why God's so concerned about that. So let's jump back into Micah and the world's most forgiving mother, all right? So verse three and four again, just so we remember, he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, and she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver, and I will give it back to you. So after she, or after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make uh, the idol and it was put in Micah's house. So I'm not very good at math. But 1,100 shekels went missing. He fessed up to stealing 1,100 shekels, which she so kindly blesses him for, and, and professes to God in front of her son, I commit all of this to you. And then he gets to the point where he actually physically returns the money, at which point mom has 1,100 shekels in her hand and decides, you know, I know a guy that's really good. I bet you he could make something real nice out of 200 shekels. And I think I'll keep the rest, right? Like, I commit everything to you, Lord. I consecrate all of this to you, except the part that I'm more comfortable keeping, right? And just, this is kind of one of those things I think all of us are familiar with, but man, is it, is it so easy to say with our words that we're all in, we're following God, we're giving him everything, like I, I, I commit everything to you, I, I want to follow you with my whole heart, and we can say those words, and man, we can mean them, but then we have this other parts of us where we sort of compartmentalize things in our life and our faith, where we're like, I don't know if I want to give you all of this part just yet, right? Like you hold back some of your like all in faithfulness to the Lord in different areas of your life. And it's like, we say we're all in, but then it's like, do we really want God to be all in with our marriage? Do we really want God to be a hundred percent in control of our finances? Do we really want to pledge like uh, all in, in our future, you know, search for a spouse? Or do we want to like, like say some really nice prayers about it and be sincere and genuine about it. And then like kind of do the rest of the work on our own because we kind of have, I probably know how better to handle these 900 shekels, right? Like, I mean, it's just such a temptation for any of us. And so she has a maid and he gets the idol and puts it up in his shrine that he happened to have readily available in his home, which is interesting, right? And so he puts the idol in the shrine and bless you. And the other thing that we notice as we read through the story is that he had an ephod in his house, which if you remember from Gideon, when we learned about them, it's this vest, this kind of uh, uh, high priest garment that was used in the worship of God in the tabernacle. It had the Urim and the Thummim uh, as a part of the, the vest you could pull off to kind of get yes and no answers from God. And where the ephod was is where you worshiped God. The problem is that, that, that he's got a shrine, he's got an idol, he's got an ephod to worship God. He doesn't have a priest. Well, he solved that because it says in the text that he appoints one of his sons as a priest. He's not qualified to be a priest. And we're going to learn that he knows that he's not qualified to be a priest, but he did the next best thing. It's like, well, I don't really have the right guy, but I have a guy. That'll work, right? And so he's put everything together in what he thinks is the right way to worship God. The problem is he actually knew the right way to worship God and it wasn't 
at all in the way he was doing it. If you look in your notes, you'll see Exodus 25 through 31. And I just just highlight that for your own time to go back on your own time and look at that because the way that God uh, explained and kind of established how to worship him, where to worship him, what kind of things would you use, what elements would be involved, what would you not do? Like it's pretty doggone precise, it's not like God just sort of kind of willy-nilly like, hey, wherever happens to you, wherever you happen to be, just sort of do your own thing. Like take certain ingredients and just like as long as they're there, you know, like, I mean, wear your pajamas, sit at home, like be comfortable, like whatever works for you, right? Like when you read Exodus 25 through 31, it does not sound like God in general is a God that is on board with the sort of worship with how it feels good, wherever it sort of, you know, works out for you conveniently, like I know we're not under the same guidelines as the Old Testament time. I understand that, but we also understand that we're learning about who God is and what God's like. And God seemed to be pretty concerned about us setting apart time that was sacred and holy and places and community to worship together. And so they're off the track and they're not worshiping God the way that he had designed. And I think one of the things that we see as we learn a little bit about Micah is that we get this idea that he genuinely felt like he was doing it right. And I think one of the reasons that we could see that is what we read in verse 6. It says that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Now, when, when you live in a world where you're surrounded by people who are doing what they feel like is best for them. They're following their arrow in their heart and their feelings and their whatever, right? Like whatever makes you feel good. All of a sudden, it's pretty easy as a follower of God, like Micah, to look around you and start to have something else be your standard. Instead of God's word being his guide, instead of God's word being his instruction and the teaching of the Lord guiding him on what is right and wrong, he starts to look around in the world around him that it is a bunch of people that are doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's easy at that point to look out and go, gosh, look at how serious I'm taking my faith. I have a shrine. I have an idol. I've gone to all the trouble to commission an ephod. I, I've dedicated my son as a priest like I am really over here I'm doing this religion thing right compared to pick your thing right and isn't that very similar to the world that we live in like way more than Micah's world I mean we have you know billion dollars of advertising agencies that are trying to tell you all the time about if you know to get you to question if you're doing your life right are you doing religion right? Are you doing health right? Are you doing money right? Are you doing marriage right? Like they're trying to get you to question everything. Does your marriage look like this? Do you guys talk to each other this way? I mean, we live in a world where they're getting you to try and decide if you're taking the right drugs so that you can tell your doctor what you should take. Like everything, question everything, compare it to whatever they say the standard is. I cracked up because I like Subarus, but Subaru came out with this whole series of commercials that was devoted to target marketing uh, empty nesters. And it was this joke of like, if you don't have a Subaru and you're like 55, 60 and your kids are out of the house, then you're doing it wrong because you're supposed to be abandoning the, you know, having this, adopting this carefree lifestyle that a Subaru will give you. Does your car not make you feel that way? Like, are you, you're doing it wrong. 
like over and over and over and over again. And it bleeds into our worship and preaching and who you watch and who you listen to. It's the same stuff that Micah was wrestling with. And I just think it bears reminding that um, it's a radical idea to trust God and follow his instructions for you in a world where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And I think a lot of times following Jesus in America gets really watered down because it's safe. Some people like to think it's, oh, I'm getting persecuted. (laughs) You ain't seen nothing. I'm not saying somebody in here hasn't, but you know what I mean. Like, it's safe. It's comfortable. You have 20 churches in every town to choose from. You have all kinds of content available in every kind of format. Like, it's palatable and accepted in our culture to be a Christian. I'm not saying it's the most popular thing in the world, but it's far from unsafe. And so it's easy to get lulled to sleep that, that this thing that you're committing to is radically, radically different than the way the world wants you to live. And it's sort of like, yeah, is it really that big of a deal? Yeah, it is a big deal. And I think it's good for us to remember. Uh, I want to zoom in to the rest of the story. Okay, so Judges chapter 17, verse 7. We're just going to zip through some of this stuff. I put it in there. Um, definitely go back and read Judges 17 because I'm going to give you the highlight reel with a little bit of good old-fashioned uh, North Idaho paraphrase. So, um, so uh Micah has got his stuff set up. We meet a young Levite in the story from Bethlehem that's out looking for somewhere else to get a job because for some reason he's not where he was supposed to be doing the job he was supposed to be doing as a priest. He's out on the run looking for somewhere else to be and who knows why. And so Micah meets him and Micah, this is where we get this uh, a little bit of insight behind the scenes that he actually knew the right way to worship because when he sees a Levite who is actually qualified to be a priest, He's like, oh, I got to have him. I got to get me one of them because I got like the second rate priest. You know, he's not really a priest, but I put the right clothes on him and I told him to say the right things. But I, I knew he wasn't right. And now that I got this guy, I got to have one of those. And so he strikes up a deal with this Levite to offer him room and board and give him a little bit of money. And it will be this great thing. And I, oh, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but like, have you seen my religious assortment of stuff? Like I've really put a lot of work into curating the right kind of stuff. Oh, that's a good deal. I'd like that job. And so he takes him into his house, treats him as his son, and things seem to go pretty good for a minute. Until we meet the tribe of Dan. I'm sorry if your name is Dan. The tribe of Dan is essentially homeless in the land of Uh, the promised land that the Israelites are in right now. And they're wandering around looking for somewhere to conquer, looking for land to take over that's fertile and easy to take over. And you might be wondering, like, wait a minute, didn't God promise all of the Israelites to come into the promised land and they would have land, right? They did. The problem is when they got their marching orders to go in and they got instruction about what they were supposed to do, this tribe didn't. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't follow through on God's commands. And so they essentially ended up homeless vagabonds living in the hills in tents, kind of just just toughing out an existence on the fringes. Well, later in the story, they're tired of that kind of life. They don't like tent city anymore. They're like, we're looking around and it's really nice if you had a garden and a roof over your head. Like we'd rather live that way. 
after the fact. So they grab some of their scouts, they send them out and say, basically, go look all throughout Israel, search all over the place for somebody that looks wimpy enough that we could take out their stuff and, you know, like overtake their land. And so they're out on a scouting mission to do just that. They come across Micah's house. They spend the night, realize that he's got a priest and start to inquire of the priest, like, are things going to go well? And the priest tells them that things are going to go well. Why? Was he really talking to the Lord or was he just trying to tell him what they wanted to hear so he didn't get beat up? I have no idea. Read it on your own and wrestle with it. So they go off and they find a place where it looks like they could overtake them. They go back to the to Dan, to the rest of their tribe. They tell them all the stuff that happened. These guys that were scouts round up uh, 600 fighting men, it says, and they are heading back to this area where they are sure that they can like basically steal some property and set up home. On the way, they stop back by Micah's place and they say, remember that guy that we spent the night with that had all of the religious stuff? Like he had, he had a shrine, he had idols, he had an ephod, he had a priest, like he had everything we need to do religion right. And doesn't it seem silly that like just one guy would have all of that stuff? Like we should take their his stuff because it would be way better served. Like those are some, those are like really good ingredients. And they would be way better serving a whole tribe than just one guy. And so they do exactly that. They strike up a deal with the priest, offer him more money, feed his ego. It's like, wouldn't you rather work? I mean, do you want to preach for a crowd of 20 or do you want to preach for a crowd of 600? I mean, come on right? He's like, well, now that you mention it. And so he goes to work for them and they take all of his stuff. Well, uh, Micah gets wind of it. Micah gets wind that this has happened kind of right under his nose. He rounds up a handful of friends. This army of 600 has taken his stuff. They're marching off to another place nearby to overtake them. And Micah and his five or six buddies are running behind him with, you know, like pitchforks and sticks going, what are you doing? How'd you take my stuff? How come you're, what do you guys think you're doing? And he's freaking out. This army of fighting men kind of mockingly turn and look at him like, what is your problem? What is all the ruckus about? And, and, and like, seriously, what are you going to do about it? You know what I mean? Like, and, and it's interesting and I think really telling in the way Micah responds to them at this spot in the story. It goes like this in verse 24 of chapter 18. He says, he replied, you took the gods I made and my priest, and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, what's the matter with you? And we get this real honest look at where Mike is at in his head, in his heart, his actions. Like this is the most honest moment about who this guy really is and what's really going on. It's that everything he had could be taken away from him. He had built his religion around stuff, the right things that looked the right way, with the right procedures, with the right label. But when those things were taken from him, he literally could say to himself, like, what am I supposed to do now? You've taken everything I have. It's like game over. My life is worthless now. And I think that's just such a a critical reminder for us as we practice our faith, as we 
commit to follow Jesus, that, that we're just reminded that like anytime we make something into our kind of man-made religion, anytime we put something in the place of worshiping God, whether it's our career and it's like we get all of our hopes up in the right job or we get all of our hopes up in the right person or the right marriage or the right amount of finances and we put all of this like, like we, it, it, it's like God and, and we, we adjust and adapt and, and try to make our religion suit us it's always going to come up short. That stuff always leads to disappointment. But if we're committed to trust and follow Jesus, if we actually answer that call to follow Jesus, he, he invites us into this thing that is so amazing, this relationship with him that, that transforms us over time to be more and more like him, and it offers something that no religion like Micah experienced can ever offer, and that is security. That when you have salvation, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you have relationship with God, and your eyes are on Jesus, you have something that can never be taken from you. And no matter what life throws at you, no matter what kind of curveballs come your way, you'll never find yourself in a position where you can be like Micah and get to that desperate spot where you're like, everything, like it's over. Like, I'm done. I'm destitute. I have nothing. You could be like, I'm broke, but I have Jesus, right? And you can you could sit here and maybe think like, well, that sounds sort of cliche. All I can tell you all I can tell you is I have been in some horrible spots in my life personally where I have had devastation and things pulled away from me that I never thought I was going to have pulled away from me. And in those times where rightly might have thought like game over, I don't know if it's worth living anymore. I didn't think that. I thought, man, am I so lucky that I, that I have Jesus and that no matter what happens over here, that this is going to be okay. And I know it sounds weird. If you're not there, it's hard to explain. All I can tell you is it's true. And so we're just, we're just going to wrap up this morning. Uh, we're going to have the worship team come back out. And, and I, I put some statements in your notes at the end of your notes there, and I just want to walk through them with you as we get ready to worship. Um, one of the things that's awesome about Jesus is he invites us into a relationship with him. He invites us to follow him, be changed by him. And, and we're invited to step onto this ancient path the scriptures talk about. I love this because I like hiking and exploring. And it's like, oh, you've just stumbled across a path in the woods that, that's been there for a thousand years. It's like finding a chunk of the Oregon Trail and knowing you're actually walking on the exact trail that people walked on before. There's something really cool about that. Like who was on here before? That's the path Jesus invites us to walk on. It's this ancient path that has been leading people for thousands of years to get to know and follow God. And the longer you're on it, the closer you get to him, the more you get to know him, the better you be, the more you become like him. And long after we're gone, it's going to be leading people to get to know and follow him. And the path is Jesus. And so I just, I just want to go through these things with you. It just right now, as we're wrapping up the series and all kinds of stuff going on in the world, it's pretty easy to recognize that there's people that are feeling lost and not sure where to go next, right? If that's where you're at, set your heart on Jesus. He's the way. 
Literally, Jesus says he's the way. If you're confused and, and you don't know who or what to trust or believe right now, and everywhere you look, you just come up more confused and more frustrated, I, I just want to say, set your mind on Jesus. He's the truth. Like, that's it. Look to him. If you're in the dark and you're scared and you're like, I don't know what's coming next and it's kind of giving me a lot of anxiety and life's freaking me out a little bit right now and I can't see what is happening or what's coming, put your heart on Jesus because he's the light. That's what it looks like to step onto that path, like to trust that Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the light. If we can do that, we can walk out our faith in a way that is radically different than so many of the people we looked at as we studied through Judges that got sucked into the culture, that got assimilated, that got off track. It's the same temptations, the same risks that we face today. And the, 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 the difference is that, like them, we still absolutely have the opportunity to follow Jesus. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.